2: You've probably heard that houseplants improve indoor air. But do they really? Then, how to make exercise easier? Because most people don't do it, and the benefits are spectacular.
1: There's evidence that moderate dose of physical activity can reduce the risk of breast cancer by as much as 30, 40%. Being physically active is by far the best way to prevent Alzheimer's. Nothing has ever come close to physical activity in terms of prevention, at least 30% reduction. Also, why does tickling make some people
2: laugh? And why can't you tickle yourself? And the science of food pairings, why
0: some foods just taste better together. So for example, chocolate and peanut butter, or if you like ketchup, add some banana or strawberry. You can combine shrimp with blueberries and and almonds. If you have a chocolate mousse, you can combine it with crispy bacon.
2: All this today on Something You Should Know. Something you should know. Fascinating
1: intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers.
2: Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. I'm certain that you have heard somewhere, probably several times, that having houseplants in your home improves the air quality. I bet if you surveyed people, most people would agree with that which is great, except it isn't true. If you do a Google search, you will see tons of articles about how houseplants are good for the air and which houseplants are best for cleaning the air in your home. But interspersed between those articles, you'll also see some other well-researched articles from National Geographic and The Atlantic and CNN and a bunch of others that spell out in great detail that plants do nothing for indoor air quality. Yes, they look good. There's some evidence that having plants in your home is good for stress and mental health and a sense of well-being. But as far as cleaning the air? No. A study published in 2019 in the Journal of Exposure Science and Environmental Epidemiology debunked this myth by analyzing 12 studies on the subject from the past 30 years. Now, there's also a belief that you get increased oxygen having houseplants in your home, but your home or office has ventilation that gives you plenty of oxygen, and if your home or office is oxygen-deprived, a couple of houseplants isn't going to help. And that is something you should know. You have some sort of history with exercise. We all do. For many, that experience in history isn't great. Exercise is one of those necessary things that many of us struggle with. We hear things like the human body is designed to move. You've got to move. Sitting is the new smoking. And yet humans are also programmed to conserve energy. So the actual getting up and moving part is really hard. And then we have expectations of exercise. And sometimes those expectations are unrealistic or or the results don't happen fast enough and we give up. So, why is it that something so necessary is so difficult? And what does work to make exercise a part of your life so you don't dread it and actually reap the rewards? Well, here to discuss and explain the science behind this is Daniel Lieberman. He's a professor of biological sciences and human evolutionary biology at Harvard University. And he's author of the book, Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do Is Healthy and Rewarding. Hi, Daniel. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. One of the questions I I think people have and that I've always had is we hear that we're built to move. We we really need to move, and that's what we're built for. And yet people hate to do it. I mean, even when they go to the gym, if they get the parking space in front of the gym, that's great, because now they don't have to walk so far. (laughs) It's like two different universes. We're built to move, And yet we hate
1: to move. So what's going on? Because of our evolutionary history, we evolved to be physically active, uh, to to move, to get food, and also move sometimes to avoid being somebody else's food. Um, And sometimes we evolved to move for for social reasons, right? When it was fun, like going going dancing with somebody. But. Otherwise, when energy was scarce back in the old days, um, it didn't make sense to do extra voluntary, discretionary, unnecessary physical activity, because the energy you spent on that was energy that you didn't spend on taking care of your body and on reproducing and all the other things that natural selection cares about. And so I make a distinction between physical activity, which is moving, and exercise, which is discretionary, voluntary physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. And until recently, nobody exercised. They moved, but they didn't exercise. And and it's innate it's natural to avoid what we now call exercise well i think
2: that's really important and should come as a relief to people who struggle with this idea that they don't exercise oh, because they're lazy they just can't stick with it they but but that's a really deep programming
1: right yeah well here's a here's a fact i'd love to 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 surprise people with but you know the average sedentary american is actually more active than your average wild chimpanzee. You know, we evolved from creatures that were, they're couch potatoes and that's normal, right? If you're a chimpanzee. Uh, My dog, you know, she, she spends the entire day going from one comfy place you know to another comfy place you know lying and resting about and you know she enjoys going out for walks and you know we'll run a little bit when she can but but she's basically a very sedentary creature i mean it's normal it's natural to to save energy if you if you can and and then yet we because we now live in a world where we we suddenly made that possible to extreme extents we now have to uh find ways to to choose to exercise and and that's a challenge but we shouldn't we shouldn't Blame people for their instincts. That instinct to avoid exercise, you know, is not—it's um, not abnormal. It's completely normal. People who get out of bed in the morning and just want to go running, all power to them. But they're abnormal. They're weird. They're—they're they're the unusual human beings.
2: Something I find really interesting about exercise, and I think even people who don't exercise much but do it occasionally have felt this is when you're done it's not the exercise itself you enjoy but when you're done that feeling of having exhausted yourself or worked out or whatever whatever you want to however you want to describe it that feeling feels great
1: but part of that is the reward and the reward is dopamine primarily so dopamine is a neurotransmitter that uh, is very involved in in reward uh, function so you know when you when you do something that you like dopamine goes up and it tells you to do it again. And the sad thing about exercise is that uh, dopamine doesn't make us exercise. You get the dopamine reward from, from having exercised, And 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 also, you know, you also build up more dopamine receptors, so you get kind of addicted to it. So if you don't get your dopamine hit, you kind of feel, you get antsy and irritated. And, you know, I, I drive my wife crazy when I don't get enough exercise. But, but most of the time to get myself out the door, I have to somehow convince myself. Other people convince themselves enough other ways by making it socially necessary or fun or rewarding or or whatever but it's in the modern world we have to choose to exercise and that's not an easy thing to do and and about 80% of Americans pretty much don't choose to do it as somebody who studies this what is in your view
2: what is it we have to do i mean the, the benefits of exercise are really indisputable, and we'll talk about them in just a moment, but but clearly there's a disconnect where people know they're supposed to exercise, but they don't exercise, and it's
1: so important that they do. So what do we do? I think we need to recognize that the current approach that our society uses isn't, isn't all that effective, right? We've medicalized it, we've industrialized it, we've commodified it, and um, that doesn't work for everybody. Um, prescribing exercise doesn't make everybody take it like you know, prescribing a pill. And so I think an anthropological and evolutionary approach can help. And, and by that, I mean, if you look at what we're evolved to do, what we're adapted to do, we're adapted to move when it's necessary or rewarding. And so I think the, the trick really is to make exercise necessary and rewarding. And I think what often works, if you look at the at the literature, what often works is to make it social. For example, I, I go running often with friends. Like this morning, I met a bunch of friends at the track to go do some intervals. And I promise you, at, at uh, earlier this morning, I did not want to go. It was dark, it's cold, it's gray, it's winter. Uh, I was feeling kind of grumpy for all kinds of reasons and um, but I had to meet them because I agreed to meet them at 7:30, and so I trotted off there and by the time I got there it was kind of warmed up a bit and I had a great time because we were all cheering each other on and helping each other do intervals and at the end I was glad I did it but the reason I glad I did it was because it was social right we were all helping each other and, and making and also the reason I went was because I agreed to do it and I if I didn't want to leave them you know waiting in the cold in the dark while uh, while I, I you know I didn't show up. And then I think the final thing to realize is that um, we, from an evolutionary anthropological perspective, is that, you know, we didn't evolve to do crazy amounts of exercise. You don't need a lot for the benefits. Um, and, you know, the most common excuse people give for for not exercising is they don't have enough time. And, you know, it's true, we're all busy. But, you know, the the 150 minutes minimum that's recommended by the by every major health organization in the world, that translates to 21 minutes a day. Um, you don't have to do it every day. You can, you know, spread it out over the week however you want. And um, just that 21 minutes a day lowers people's rate of of dying by about 50. percent um, It's huge. You know, it's and and 60 minutes a week um, is you know less than 10 minutes a day can lower your 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 mortality rate by about about 40, 30 to 40 percent. So you know you can get enormous benefits just from very you know moderate amounts of exercise. My sense is that people get discouraged easily from exercise
2: because it really does take quite a while before you feel the results or see the results. And, and I think people approach exercise in a very kind of formal way, like I have to join a gym in order to really
1: exercise. But we don't have to go to the gym. Just going for a walk every day can do enormous things, or dancing, or running a little bit, or whatever. Jumping jacks. I mean, there's no, you know, with a friend. I mean, there's so many different ways to be physically active, many of which are completely, you know, free, don't involve any equipment, um, and and can be a lot of fun. And and we don't we don't promote that that very much. And and the result is surprise, surprise. A lot of people um, don't do it. Well, I think another. Part
2: of the problem too is that people have equated, and I think the fitness industry has done a big disservice in doing this, that exercise is a great way to lose weight. And that's just not true.
1: (laughs) Absolutely not true. It it goes both ways, right? So it's true that if you wanna lose weight, um, exercise is by far not the most effective way to lose weight. If I uh, I ran five miles this morning, and that expended about 500 calories, and the the tuna fish sandwich I just wolfed down with a with a glass of you know juice and whatever is probably about the same amount, right? So you can easily make up for the calories that you spend because you're hungry after your exercise, and 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 you compensate. And furthermore, running uh, five miles to, to spend five hundred calories is uh, that's a lot of work to, to to for not that many calories. But if I if I dieted, I could lose a lot more weight a lot faster. And 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 study after study shows that dieting is more effective for 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 substantial weight loss than exercise. And and the average American who's trying to lose weight is trying to lose fifty pounds. So you know that's a that's a monumental amount of exercise. You want to lose it through exercise, but. That said, exercise turns out to be extremely important, or maybe I should say physical activity is extremely important for preventing weight gain or weight regain. So the vast majority of diets, people you know, lose their weight um, on a diet. It's, it's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging, but they lose weight. And then and then the weight comes crashing back, right? It happens time and time and time again. Um, but study after study have shown that if you exercise uh during the diet, you'll actually lose a little bit more weight than if you don't exercise. And if you continue to exercise after the diet is over, you are much more likely to keep the weight from coming back. Um, So physical activity is is really, think about it as preventive in many ways, prevents weight gain, and also extremely important in preventing weight regain after a diet. So it should be a component of every diet.
2: When people talk about physical activity, when you talk about physical activity, and you ran five miles today, and there's a, dif- there's a difference between running and lifting weights. And, and I remember hearing a long time ago from this uh, guy that did, did a study about how a huge percentage of people who end up in nursing homes are, are there not because they're sick, but because they can't live their life anymore. They can't unscrew the peanut butter jar. They can't get out of a chair because they don't have the strength to do it. That's correct. They become frail and that's absolutely. because their muscles have atrophied because they may you could run till the cows come home but if you don't exercise your muscles
1: they go away absolutely so so one of the most concerning aspects of aging is what's called is technically it's called sarcopenia sarco means muscle in greek and penia is loss so muscle loss flesh loss and um, as people get older if they don't stay uh do some weights or strength training or you know uh, climb trees or whatever it is that you happen to do then then uh, their, their muscles waste away because muscles and that has an evolutionary origin because muscle is a really expensive tissue. You're, you're, if a, a typical scrawny person like me, about 30% of my body is muscle. And that accounts for about 20% of my metabolism. So so it's about the same as my brain. So one out of every five breaths I take pays for my muscle. And so because muscle is so expensive, if I were to like bulk up and become like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I would end up needing you know, 300 more calories a day to pay for that 10% extra body mass I would gain, and back in the day, that's a lot of energy, right? That's a that's that's a serious amount of extra foraging. So, so we adapted to add muscle when we need it and lose it when we don't need it. That gets us into trouble today, what I call a mismatch disease, because um, as we get older, and we have all these machines that do everything. I mean, when you go to the supermarket, I mean, you don't have to carry anything; you push the shopping cart. When you, you know, when you go. Go, go anywhere, you, you have a suitcase that has wheels on it. You don't have to carry your suitcase anymore. I mean, on and on and on. We have so many uh, machines that, that do labor for us and do physical work for us. We no longer have to use strength. And the result is we we get uh, a loss of muscle that affects our bones as well. And and um, and you and then you can't get out of a chair. You, activities of basic life become more difficult. And then you set in motion a, a vicious circle, right? Because as you, it gets harder to do things, then you, and you slow down, you end up doing less physical activity, which, which continues to perpetuate that, that negative cycle. And, and that's why every major health organization in the world recommends that as we get older, physical activity becomes actually more important than when we're younger, and and, and particular, strength training is an important component. So as we age, it's really, you know, every, if you're going to prescribe exercise, uh, the prescription would be, you should do at least two s- sets of, of strength training a week uh, to supplement cardio. Cardio is still the bedrock of, of fitness and, 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 and you know physical activity, but, but strength is also important too. There's no question of it. We're
2: talking about exercise and the reasons to do it and ways to get motivated to do it. And I'm speaking with Daniel Lieberman. He is a professor of biological sciences at Harvard and author of the book, Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. So, Daniel, what does the research say or what, what do we know from observing people who don't exercise that w- when they do exercise and s- really stick with it, it's because they did what?
1: Well, I mean, part of the problem is that nobody actually has figured that out. Most of the, most of the interventions that we've tried had kind of small effect the US uh, government the Department of Health and Human Services in 2018 produced this massive hundred several hundred page volume where they analyzed every single intervention study ever done to get people to exercise you know doctors prescribing it fitbits um, emails that you get sent on a regular basis texts um, you know having more sidewalks in your neighborhood you name it um, and people have tried it and it turns out that many of them have no effect or and when when they do have an effect they tend to be kind of modest. Now, of course, as I said before, even small amounts of additional physical activity are good. But I think the one thing that we haven't tried very well is to make it more necessary, right? You know, prescribing it like cod liver oil is just not working, you know, telling people how many steps they took a day uh, on their Fitbit or their iPhone, you know, may help some people, but doesn't help that many people and not by a huge amount. So I think by taking an, evol- I'm, I'm really making a proposal here. I don't have I don't you know, nobody's done the randomized control experiment, partly because it's illegal. Right. Um, uh, But we used to do that in terms of school. Right. We used to require physical activity in schools and colleges, for example, used to require exercise. There was no every 100 percent of universities in the United States until recently had physical education requirements, which meant physical activity requirements. Um, Now, uh, only a handful do. Uh, and they tend to be very modest requirements and studies have shown that the sorts of things you do when you're in college tend to be very habit forming. And so I think it's one of the reasons why people are, are less physically active today because they're just not in the habit of doing it. So I I would encourage us to try more uh, interventions, kind of behavioral economic kinds of interventions that help us uh, be more physically active. Let me get, Let me give you an example. I have a friend who was struggling to exercise, um, and she uh, f- heard about this website called stick.com. That's stick with two Ks, and it's a, it's a commitment contract model. So she sent uh, 2,000 bucks or something, I don't know exact number, to this website. And if she didn't walk a certain number of miles a week, and I don't remember what it was, maybe it was like 20 miles a week or something, you know, 10 miles a week or something like that, the website would automatically send $50 to the NRA. And she hates the NRA. <laughs> so, so it was, for her, a huge motivator, right?
2: One of the things people have heard a lot about recently, I'm not sure where this started, was that sitting is the new smoking, that y- really sitting is not a good thing, sitting is horrible.
1: What do you say? What does the science say? Uh, it turns out that if you look at the data, it's leisure time sitting, which is really most strongly associated with negative health outcomes. So people who sit at work but then are active in the rest of the day, do just fine. The people who are getting in trouble are the ones who who sit uh, all day long, but also sit to get to work because they're in their car, for example. And then, then, when they get home, they continue to sit all evening. And, and you know, it's if it's if it's if it's if it's over too much sitting. Well, then yes, it's a problem. But the other is that there are better and worse ways to sit. And and what's been shown over and over again is that it's what's called active sitting tends to be best. So if you get up every once in a while and just turn on your muscles, essentially, by going to the bathroom or getting a cup of tea or petting the cat or fidgeting or whatever it is you're doing, uh, or occasionally standing, for example, that's that's really beneficial. So it's the sitting bout duration that's really important so our ancestors rarely sat for more than 15 minutes right because you have to get up to tend the fire or run after a kid or do this or do that you know they're not sitting inertly for long 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 periods of time but when you but when you interrupt your sitting you you turn on your muscles like turning on a car and it turns on all kinds of uh, genes and it turns on all kinds of metabolic cascades and has all kinds of benefits so let's not demonize sitting sitting is in and of itself not not the new smoking, but sitting too much and sitting too inertly does have negative health consequences.
2: There's also the issue, I think, of people who think it's too late or I'm too fat or I've got, let it go too long and there's no point in starting now. It would take too much work. and And so they give up before they even start.
1: Fortunately, the good news is that that's just not true, right? It's never too late to start. And and there are plenty of studies which have studied that, right, which compare, you know, uh, people's health outcomes, whether they're lifelong exercisers, lifelong non-exercisers, or people who start at various points in their life, and all of those studies have shown that there are enormous benefits to to picking up exercise at any point in your life. Because, and the reason for that is that every time you you're physically active, you're turning on all kinds of repair and maintenance mechanisms that have immediate short-term effects that are beneficial. And we often view exercise through the lens of weight loss, right? If if you know if the only reason to exercise is for weight loss, well then sure, it's not going to be. The best way to do that but there's so many other benefits to physical activity than weight loss and if we you know we're, we're really missing out on a, an awful lot of the of the one benefits by just focusing on that one outcome criteria it's not it's it's a kind of a problem with our with our, our current approach There
2: is a a cumulative effect to exercise that I don't think is well understood by most people. And, you know, so when it's time to, do I take the escalator or do I take the stairs? Well, I'll take the escalator because even if I took the stairs, it's just once and what difference is it going to make? But it does add up. So can you give me some
1: examples of of the cumulative effects of exercise? If you stand instead of sit, you're spending about eight more calories an hour, which is about the number of calories in a slice of apple. It's not a lot of calories, but let's just say you have an eight-hour day of work and you stand for all those eight hours. You know, for a full year, you're talking about twenty-three thousand calories, right? Which is which is a substantial number of calories. That's that's about enough calories. Uh, to run about eight or nine marathons for the, for the average person. So small amounts of very modest levels of physical activity over long periods of time add up to large numbers.
2: I think people have a general sense that exercise is good for you, it's healthy, but, but people don't necessarily know exactly what that means. So, So could you describe some of the very specific health benefits of exercise?
1: there's evidence that just that moderate dose of physical activity can reduce the risk of breast cancer for, for um, but, you know, different different studies come up with different estimates by, by as much as 30, 40%. Um, being physically active is by far the best way to prevent Alzheimer's. Um, there's really nothing has ever come close to physical activity in terms of prevention and risk reduction for Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, at least at least a at least 30% reduction in, in the risk. Um, heart disease is almost you know entirely preventable through 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 physical activity. Uh, well, diet is also important, of course. You know, we think it's normal for people's blood pressure to go up as they get older, but we've studied populations in, in Mexico and colleagues have studied populations in Africa and all over the world world and, and sort of non-industrialized, non-Western populations where people are physically active and, and don't eat, eat lots of processed foods, the 80-year-old's blood pressure is no different than 20-year-olds. Um, so the idea that your blood pressure necessarily goes up with age is just not true. It's a modern Western thing. And, and high blood pressure is arguably the biggest killer of people on the planet. Well, I've always
2: found it interesting that when people say they hate to exercise, they don't really mean that. That is so much as they hate getting there. They hate the start of it. They hate the process to get to the exercise. But very few people I think engage in physical activity and later say, "Oh, I, I'm really sorry I did that."
1: That's right. And that's why we need to make it necessary uh, because <laughs> because because our ancestors didn't have to choose to be physically active. They would starve if they weren't, right? And and so we never evolved, it's just like dieting. We never evolved to, to go into negative energy balance on purpose, um, which is what dieting is, you know, eating less than you're using. That's, that's you know, it turns on all kinds of mechanisms in your body to prevent you from doing it. You get cravings and you, you know, you get your cortisol levels go up. I mean, you know, it sends your body into a starvation crisis mode, right? We, we never evolved to diet because our ancestors never were overweight when trying to lose weight. And we also never evolved to to entice ourselves to do needless physical activity. But, but we now live in a world we've created because of machines and, and cars and elevators and shopping carts and you name it. We now have to find ways to choose to do something fundamentally abnormal. Now, we've succeeded with that for reading and school and various other things like that by making it necessary. And and we can do the same thing for exercise. We just have to choose to do it. We have to decide it's worth it. Well, this has been
2: really enlightening and and I think motivating to help people exercise because the benefits are clearly there. Daniel Lieberman has been my guest. He's a professor of biological sciences and human evolutionary biology at Harvard University And the name of his book is Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. You'll find a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Daniel.
1: My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me.
2: Well, if you've ever eaten, say, chocolate and peanut butter, or uh, cake and ice cream, and thought they taste better together than they do alone, then you understand food pairing. Some foods just go better with other foods. So why is that? And is it predictable? Is there a science to it? Or is it just trial and error? Well, it is science. And Bernard LaHousse knows a lot about it. He is a bioengineer, and along with his co-authors, They consult with food professionals and chefs, and they've written a really wonderful book about this called The Art and Science of Food Pairing. Hi, Bernard. Welcome.
0: Hi, Mike. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. Sure. So what is it? What is going
2: on when you eat, say, chocolate and peanut butter together? And clearly they, to many of us, taste better together than they do alone. So why is that? What's the magic that happens when you put those... Foods together.
0: Yeah, um, this is really interesting. So, as as humans, we are variety seekers. We are not like pandas who only eat bamboo or koalas who only eat uh, eucalyptus leaf. We crave for variety. So, if you make the association to, for example, music, imagine that you would hear the same song every day. So, the appreciation would decrease once the novelty of that uh, music has worn off to keep something interesting, we want something complex, but also not too complex. So it's really finding the balance between something complex, but also familiar and, and really a, a good pairing is to find that optimal level between the complexity where the stimulation keeps us interested, but also the harmony, the coherence, some familiar uh, elements.
2: But is there something magical because i can i could randomly take two foods and eat them together and they taste terrible and i can take uh, two other foods and eat them together and they taste wonderful so
0: why maybe i should tell you how the story for for me and 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 for us uh, started i've always been passionate about good food i had a a grandmother who prepared dinner for the whole family every week who took us to michelin star restaurants and I've always been intrigued by uh, understanding why some ingredients pair while others uh, don't. And about 15 years ago, when I finished my studies as a, as a food scientist, I started to reach out to chefs to, to understand um, how they make those combinations. So, one of one of the chefs I started to collaborate with was uh, San Hoon de Jambre, a, a two Michelin star chef from Belgium. And during one of of the sessions we had, he was uh, asking, uh, Bernard, when I smell a kiwi, uh, I also smell the sea, is that possible? So as a a food scientist, okay, smelling means uh, aroma compounds. There are machines that can detect what aromas there are. So analyzed a kiwi and indeed found out that in kiwi, there are molecules that smell like the sea which you find in seaweed or in, in caviar, of oyster, and when we analyzed oyster, we found molecules, that fruity molecules, that you could also find in kiwi. So one of the first dishes that we ever made was a kiwi and oyster combination based on that aroma similarity. And in the meantime, we've traveled around the world, analyzed more than than 7,000 ingredients from ants in the Amazon to kimchi in South Korea to find out what are the aromas and what are the associations they make to other food products.
2: So it's all based on, well, isn't much of our sense of taste really our sense of smell?
0: Indeed. So if you want to uh, create a, a fantastic dish, Next to the visual aspect, you need to optimize for flavor. And flavor, it's a combination of smell, taste, and texture. And indeed, smell is the most important. That, that's maybe surprising, but you can do the, the following trick. Uh, mix some cinnamon with sugar, and then you pinch your nose, and then you taste the sugar with cinnamon, and you will notice that you will not taste any cinnamon at all. So you you really need your nose to experience the most uh, of the food. And that's also why aroma is that important in making combinations.
2: When I think of peanut butter and chocolate, I mean, they don't seem like they have a whole lot in common. I mean, you would know better than I, but but they do taste good together, but not because they seem so similar or what?
0: Yeah, so... Uh, there are nutty notes in chocolate that will match very well with uh, the peanut butter. But you also have a change in, in texture. So the, the chocolate has a different texture than, for example, uh, the peanut butter. And the, the, the most ideal dish, you try to optimize for, uh, for smell, but also for taste and texture. For example, if you have tortilla chips, they will taste better if you combine them with guacamole. Because you combine something crispy with uh, more something soft. But it's really uh, the aroma who binds everything uh, together and op- open up the, the possibilities. And, and food pairing is not only for for chefs around the world, it's really helping you to upgrade some some staple foods. Like for example, sweet potato. If you analyze sweet potato, it has some roasted caramel, floral and fruity notes. And if you know that, then you can go into different directions. So you can combine sweet potato with caramel and pecan because it has the roasted notes or because of the floral notes, you can combine it with honey or for fruit with apple. And so by really detecting what are the aromas and you can do that also by training your nose and finding out what are the uh, aromas present, you can find multiple ways to combine the the food products.
2: So the trick is to match similar foods in terms of what they smell like is that is that because they because you said for example chocolate and peanut butter have different textures so that's a difference it's not a compatibility and that's what makes it appealing or guacamole and tortilla chips are different but you're also the- saying that some foods are similar so so how, how do you make sense of that
0: well, for, for taste and texture, you have to search for the contrast. But for aroma, for smell, you have to search for similarity. So, okay. for example, chocolate and peanut butter, they are more like roasted, nutty products. So that's why they combine together. They are uh, fami- similar to each other, but still there is a, a difference which makes it uh, more complex. But I will give you some other examples of surprising combinations that uh, you can try uh, at home. So, for example, imagine you make uh, a cheese and potato casserole, add some grinded coffee powder on top of it. You will add a different layer or add some coffee powder to pumpkin soup. Or if you're working with cooked uh, green beans, add some uh, orange and hazelnuts. Or if you like, for example, ketchup, add some... Banana or strawberry, uh, the, the strawberry will actually push up the, the aroma profile of, uh, of the tomato uh, in the ketchup. You can combine shrimp with blueberries and, and almonds. If you have a chocolate mousse, you can combine it with crispy bacon, or you can just take a simple strawberry and add a bit of, of Parmesan. You will notice that you will create something totally new.
2: And so when you pair foods the way you just described the, is it predictable or is it trial and error must you actually just throw foods together and go nope that didn't work or can you say you know because of this and because of this i think these are going to go together well
0: it is predictable but of course so the, the advantage of what we do is that we can map out all possible combinations and that we can find out ingredients that pair very well that nobody found before because they are in different parts of the world or their new products. But of course, food, it is personal. Some people are more adventurous than others. Some people have more experience with, with tasting some uh, some food. So of course, that will also be important in defining if you like uh, a product. For example, chocolate. Chocolate can be combined with a lot of products. For example, it can be combined with chicken. It's done in Mexico with with moles. On the other hand, if you go to Japan, one of the best-selling Kit Kats in Japan, it's a combination with soy sauce. And chocolate and soy sauce, again, they match very well. But if you don't like soy sauce, it will not be your combination. If you never tasted soy sauce before, the combination in chocolate will maybe be too complex or unfamiliar for you.
2: Yeah, well, I would imagine that it, you know, no matter how great the combination is, if you don't like one of those foods, uh, combining it with another food isn't going to do any good because you just don't like that
0: food. But we're we're running a project, for example, with kids and a problem with with children is that they don't like a lot of uh, vegetables. One way of solving it is actually by starting with the food they like and trying to find combination food pairing combinations that are close to what they like but a bit different and by doing that you can gradually move them towards certain vegetables that they didn't like before Uh, some moms use it as a trick if you don't like certain vegetables they will add something sweet or they will add the fruit something you like it's actually a strategy that that you can use
2: well, clearly you you wrote this really gorgeous book about food pairings, but but everybody's different. Is there some way that people can get a sense of like what they like, what their food preferences are?
0: If people would be interested in knowing more about what they like, we actually have a new free website, which is my.flavor.id. If they fill in some survey, they can actually learn about themselves, what drives their liking, and as such, you can find out what, what, what uh, vegetables they actually would like to eat.
2: So you said before that crispy bacon goes good with chocolate mousse, which comes as a surprise to me. But if you were to take a hundred people, and they all liked bacon, and they all liked chocolate, and you gave them chocolate mousse with crispy bacon, how likely is it? Are, are they all going to like it? Are, they ha- are half of them going to like it? A quarter of them?
0: no in this case almost all of them
2: i also wonder how people's expectations affect this like if you tell people that you're going to combine foods that don't sound like they might go together like chocolate and bacon isn't their expectation going to affect whether or not they like it
0: yeah you're absolutely uh, right one of the tricks that chefs use is that when when they start to work with food pairing they often do that in the appetizers because people are much more open in appetizers than in main dishes. They're more critical in the main dish. So if you give a combination of chocolate with soy sauce without saying, the chance is high that people will like it. But when you indeed in advance say it's soy sauce and chocolate, then they will say, whoa, I've never tasted that before. That seems like gross. I will not like it. And they will not like it. Same is true, for example, with beer. Beer people often combine that with savoury foods but certain beer also work really well with sweet foods but because with desserts, but because people are not used to to combine it, it will be less preferred.
2: What are some other combinations that might go together that maybe people haven't thought of before?
0: For example, cauliflower combines really well with nutmeg but if you add grapes to it then you add an extra layer or shrimp and tomato it's a classic combination but if you add rhubarb you will lift it up for example i was talking about the ants when you went to the amazon uh, we found ants that really tasted like like lemongrass and are perfectly combinations with a uh, pineapple
2: wait a minute wait a minute you said ants like insect ants taste like lemongrass and and you combine them with pineapple
0: yeah yeah. And and before i was also very skeptical But when I tasted these ants, they really taste amazing. It's like lemongrass and ginger that you're tasting. And there's one chef uh, in Brazil that combines the ants with, uh, uh, with pineapple and serve that as a dessert.
2: Well, that's the perfect example of something that if you told me ahead of time, I'm probably not going to like that because it's bugs. But if you didn't tell me, I probably would.
0: Yeah, and, and if you are in a setting of a, of a top restaurant you're probably also more open to try new foods and it's a really amazing combination
2: how do you cook ants
0: I think they, they roast them in the oven or they dry them you, you see actually the the shape of the ants on top of your piece of pineapple
2: and lastly is there is there really any way for the you know average home cook to... Come up with pairings, or do you really have to study this and know it? Um, th- there's no like magic formula.
0: No, there, there's no, not a magic formula that you can learn by heart. You can train, of course, uh, your nose. But uh, online, there are many combinations that you can find. We have a, a blog where you can find lots of combinations. Um, and and the trick is really to start really simple. Take a piece of strawberry and Parmesan and taste it together. Combine the the bacon with uh, the chocolate mousse. Try to add coffee powder to your cheese and and potatoes. So very simple, not very fancy, but try to upgrade the foods that you already like by adding little twist to it.
2: Well, the whole idea of why some foods taste better with other foods and why some combinations taste better than the foods taste by themselves, I think people have always wondered why that is, and it's interesting to get some explanation and some ideas to try. Bernard Lahouse has been my guest. He is co author of the book, The Art and Science of Food Pairing, and the website that he mentioned earlier, where you can put in some information and see what foods and what vegetables you might like and what to combine them with. That website is my.flavor.id, my.flavor.id, and that is also in the show notes. Thank you, Bernard. Thanks for coming on Something You Should Know.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot.
2: Tickling is a funny thing. In some cases, just the threat of being tickled causes people to laugh. But other people don't seem very ticklish at all, no matter what you do. So what's the deal here? Well, as near as science can tell, tickling actually causes us to panic. Someone is touching us and we don't know where or with what pressure. And that panic causes us to laugh. This also helps explain why we can't tickle ourselves. Our brains have developed the ability to distinguish between expected and unexpected sensations. We have a panic response to unexpected sensations, and that's a good thing, because it helps keep us sensitive to predators. But if we try to tickle ourselves, it's expected. We know where and how we're going to touch ourselves, so there's no panic reaction. And therefore, no laughter. And that is something you should know. Our audience is growing by leaps and bounds, but we can always use your help to grow it by bigger leaps and bounds. If you would just share this podcast with someone you know, do it right now, today. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.